In grade school, we might learn history in class and think of it as a straightforward recitation of facts and dates. Today's guest, however, explains that history can be a high-stakes conflict, shaping the collective memories and national narratives that can prepare a nation for great trials and even war. She's Jade McGlynn this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller, also with Salve's Pell Center. And our guest today is Dr. Jade McGlynn, a research fellow in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. She's also the author of two timely and insightful books, Memory Makers, The Politics of the Past in Putin's Russia, as well as Russia's War. She joins us today from the United Kingdom. Jade, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. You know, I, you and I had a chance to talk, and the books together and individually are really uh, important and fascinating reads. Uh, I want to start, though, talking about Memory Makers, The Politics of the Past in Putin's Russia, uh, you know, which is an interesting exploration of the way Putin and his regime are using memory and history uh, for their own purposes. But I'm wondering, to get started, if you could explain the difference between those two things, between memory and history. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important distinction, and it's one that sometimes gets lost. So the difference between memory and history is history is either facts as they happened, or at least an attempt to try to work out the facts as they happen. Whereas memory is the remembrance, either individual, direct, or um, in the case, um, in many of the cases that I look at, more of a cultural or collective memory that's that's passed down and is recreated and is is very pliable. So yes, there's some overlap, but we're really talking about quite different quite different um, topics. Is is this the stuff of uh, national identity? Mm -hmm. I think so because. Every single nation needs a story that it can cohere around um, and everybody, just every single individual, um, makes sense of the future of their lives, you know, through, through reference to the past. That's, that's just um, a normal way of living your life. And this role, this idea of belonging to something bigger, to having that sense of continuity is increasingly important. And I think particularly perhaps in a secular age, as well, um, history begins to take on more important elements, more important ways of, of tying people together and into a story, into that sense of community that, that perhaps some, some feel is lost. So what is, what is Putin trying to achieve with his appropriation of Russian history and memory? Mm -hmm. So I think there's two elements here. First of all, everybody's trying to do this in a way. I mean, I think that there's nothing pathological really about what um, the Kremlin or what Russia was try is trying and what has been trying to do with memory. It's perhaps more a question of the extreme lengths to which it has gone. But uh, many of the tactics that, that I describe, I think you'll find, you know, pretty much, in, if not in all, then in most countries of the world, 
What makes the Russian case so interesting is a couple of things. So first of all, it's that there really wasn't a post-Soviet idea of what it means to be Russia, of why Russia belongs, why is Russia, why do Russians belong together? And there were various sort of efforts to create one, but, but nothing really worked or, or could work. And in the end, the focus came to history, firstly, because pride over the victory in the Great Patriotic War, which is what Russians use, a term Russians use to refer to not so much the Second World War as specifically 1941 to 1945 um, and the Soviet fight against Nazism. Um, so that was one of the most, this pride in that victory was one of the most unifying elements um, that the country had. And to be honest, you know, when Putin came to power in, the in 2000, there really weren't that many things to unify around. And so increasingly this sense of a shared historical narrative um, became, I suppose, the, the anchor. And then, of course, it also tied into, well, bluntly, a, a lack of vision for the future. And so over time, increasingly became so that the, the future would be what I describe as a sort of sense of nostalgic anticipation. It will be good because we'll recreate some of the bits that we lost. What is the effect, the continuing, the lingering effect of the collapse of the Soviet Union on mm -hmm. Russia and Putin more specifically? Well, Putin has himself spoken quite a lot um, about the effect on him and, you know, there's there's an awful lot of material and, and journalism on that point. I think I'm probably better placed to speak about the effect or the use of, of the effect. So the 1990s, um, sometimes I'm quite surprised because you'll see it's quite common to hear commentators in the West discuss it as, okay, well, that's when Russia had this sort of experience of of democracy and liberalism, and I, I think that's a very flawed interpretation of what happened in the 1990s, to put it mildly. Mm. Um, you know, the, the transition to democracy never really worked out unless, you know, um, I mean, certainly in my reading of, of that period and my reading of, of sort of Yeltsin's hyper-presidentialism and um, the very flawed election of, of 1996. And the reason why this matters is because Russians became very, very disillusioned. There was a lot of hope with the fall of the Soviet Union and Russians became very disillusioned both by capitalism because they experienced an incredibly extreme form of it. I mean, that's why it was called shock therapy. Um, and, you know, the sudden sort of inequality um, was very jarring for many. Um, and also because it led to, you know, incredible poverty with people not being paid, um, with people being paid in gherkins or pickles instead of their actual wages. It's very humiliating and a sense of a loss of status that, that was once there, even if perhaps it was only imagined that it was there. There was that feeling that of, of loss, of, of, of a profound loss. And one of the elements that the Kremlin sort of, or the state-aligned media has been incredibly effective at doing is taking that sense of personal humiliation that many people felt understandably and then mixing it, inflating it with a national humiliation, this sense that, yes, you felt humiliated and the West was responsible for that, just as they humiliated us in Yugoslavia in 1999, just as they humiliated us, um, you know, by uh, getting involved and spreading colour revolutions, in their view, um, in in Georgia, in, Kyrgyz in Kyrgyzstan, in Ukraine in 2004. And now, 
Putin has finally got Russia back off its knees and we can avenge these humiliations, we can undo them. And it's incredibly powerful because it's mixed that personal element um, with a sense of a broader national cause. So what, what was Vladimir Putin do, doing during this period, during the 1990s, and how has that affected him today in charge of Russia? Mm -hmm. So there's the famous, uh, the famous moment um, that's often cited in, in any long reads on um, Vladimir Putin about him being in Dresden and sort of calling for, for support or advice um, from Moscow and then the sort of famous line, Moscow is silent. And that sense, um, he speaks about it a lot, it does appear to have had an effect on him that the, the notion of the collapse of the state um, and something that could be so all-powerful. And to be honest with you, it's a very cohering element within Russian society as well. We've just had the sort of Prigozhin rebellion. And there we saw in Putin's speeches, he referred a lot to this sense of, well, the state could collapse, we could have times of troubles, we could have 1917, the civil war. And it seemed an odd line if your whole sort of gambit is about, you know, I'm, very, I'm a very strong leader and I keep Russia secure. But actually, it makes a lot of sense if we then think back to what coheres the elites and the people in Russia. Well, that fear of collapse mm. and that fear of collapse is because Putin himself also, you know, during the 1990s experienced a loss of status, a sense of trying to find his place within, within the world. Luckily for Putin, and I think unluckily for for Russia, um, he managed to find his place, which was as a, um, a deputy to um, Anatoly Sobchak, who was the mayor of the first elected, democratically elected mayor of um, St. Petersburg, newly renamed or newly named back to its old name. Um, and um, there he was involved with a number of sort of ventures and schemes that um, I would encourage um, anybody who wants to take his complaints about sort of corruption and how he saved Russia from sort of Western exploitation. I would, I would encourage them to go and explore his business dealings in the 1990s to see whether or not they should take those complaints at face value. You, know, you mentioned the uh, power and prominence of the Great Patriotic War, the Second World War as we call it here in the Atlantic world, um, in Russian history and in Russian memory today. But Russian history is rich uh, with moments and you know particular characters, if you will. Um, are there other uh, aspects of that story that the that the current Russian regime favors to tell, and are there some that it tries to de-emphasize? Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. So there's quite a fair bit that it does try to um, emphasize. Although the Great Patriotic War is is certainly the focal point. Other elements that it tries to emphasize is the, uh, the sense of sort of rocking great power status, particularly um, within the Soviet Union, um, for example, after, after the Second World War. Um, and also, you know, sort of naturally rocking sort of achievement, the first man in space, periods of um, imperial expansion, for example, under Catherine the Great, um, under um, Peter the Great or Peter the First. Um, and all the way going back to sort of Ivan the Terrible, who they sort of every now and again try to rehabilitate in the oddest ways. Um, and going back then even to Ivan the Third. And that, that then, the, Ivan the Third is an important character because he justifies his right to um, sort of take certain lands, for example, Novgorod, by 
claiming that he is the heir. So he expands sort of what was then Muscovy. And he does so um, using the claim that he is the heir to um, the dynasty that comes from Kievan Rus. And this is an important moment, really, I suppose, in Russian historiography or an important sort of sense, because it's this is quite central to the notion that Russia is the inheritor of Rus. Um, and that's something that really has been taught for a very long time, not only in Russia, but also in, 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 um, in the West. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, when we look at it in terms of history rather than in terms of memory, it's, it's really um, a very, <laughs> you, it's quite difficult to make that case um, of, of continuity and, and legacy there. So you, you argue that this myth-making is central to Russia's conception of itself today and that and, and also how Putin wants Russians to think about their future. Can you elaborate mm -hmm. a little bit on that? Mm -hmm. So I think that myth making in general is quite central to how nations tend to think about themselves. But ideally there might be a few different competing myths, um, you know, and there would be some pluralism. One of the issues in Russia is that you don't have this pluralism, partly for legal reasons, because um, alternative views of, of history are, are criminalized in mm -hmm. some cases. Um, for example, when it comes to certain um, opinions on, on, on the Second World War, not even opinions, sometimes they're historical facts, such as the USSR occupied the Baltic states. Um, that's not a position you would want to go around shouting outside the Kremlin. Um, so that's one aspect of it. And the other aspect is, um, is I suppose, how much how much buy-in there's been from the population. So often we focus on Putin, but really my research has always been interested in that interaction between state and society and the extent to which the state, yes, it co-opts, it creates a sense of demand for some of these things, but also it appeals to cultural elements that, that already existed. And so I think if we just focus on, on Putin, or on the Kremlin, on the top-down elements, we're really missing what they appealed to, um, what these, why these historical myths were needed. What do they answer? Um, and it doesn't necessarily matter whether or not they're true. I mean, it matters to a historian. It matters on lots of other levels. But from, I suppose, from my sort of more sociological or, or cultural point of view, what I find fascinating is that people need these myths and they find them consoling. And I think that, that there's a need there that that will need to be met and. Um, I don't see in my research and in continuing studies that there's any sort of appetite for a, a very westernized um, style of economics or a very westernized um, style of, of organizing society and, and approach to sort of, I suppose, the cultural elements of society. And in a way, Putin has managed to wrap this up it, as if... Um, all of these myths constitute a sort of a Russian exceptionalism, as if Russia is somehow innately, um, almost uniquely in touch with its past, with its traditions. It's aware of, of the real history, and it will help others to, to stay aware or to get back to their own authentic roots. Um, the extent to which people really truly believe this, that's not a question for a researcher, <laughs> because it's, it's impossible to, to really define, but there's, there's certainly a lot of evidence that people buy into it and, and act it out. And, and at that point, well, then it becomes sort of more of a philosophical question of what is belief anyway. You know, I want to ask you about how this translates directly into the uh, Ukraine war, but I'm going to put that 
aside for just a second, and we're going to come to that uh, in in a couple of minutes. But you mentioned sort of the 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 use of this mythology. But one of the things that they have de-emphasized is a lot of the worst elements of the old Soviet Union uh, mm -hmm. and the sins of some of the leaders. Um, how do they reconcile? How does Putin reconcile that history with the mythology that he's trying to create? Mm -hmm. So the history, if we talk, for example, about the history of the gulags or of the 1930s and the Great Terror, or um, so if we talk about the sort of tragedies inflicted on, on Russians, then they aren't entirely ignored they're more justified so yes the basic narrative if we look through the history textbooks if we look at sort of what's what's shown on i suppose like popular history documentaries on tv it's yes it was a shame like that was a tragedy it went too far but ultimately it was needed for industrialization and therefore to win the war and now let's talk about the war again so it is acknowledged um it's just not really it, it's tried it, they, they try to mitigate they tried to they try to justify it and i would point out that this is as opposed to the sort of crimes that russia has committed against other peoples and nations and those tend to be either completely ignored um or they are um denied you know very aggressively and sometimes you even feel like you've seen some progress maybe and it goes back so obvious example here is the the execution by the um, NKVD um, of um, thousands and thousands of Polish officers um, in the, the, the forest of Katyn during, um, well, just before, well, it was during the Second World War, it was just before the Great Patriot Court. And um, this was acknowledged, there was even some attempts at, at reconciliation, and then recently there's been a trend at the most official and highest levels to start denying it again. Mm -hmm. um, so. I'm not sure that they're that bothered about whether or not it, they come off as, as credible historians. Um, I think they're very aware um, that this myth and one of the most, to me, one of the most interesting, I suppose, sort of like historical entrepreneurs here is the former uh, Minister of Culture, Vladimir Medinsky, who also is now a presidential aide on questions of memory and is widely rumoured to have written Putin's infamous On the Historical Unity of Ukrainians and Russians um, essay. And he says that um, he, he, he said something that always stays in my mind, which is that, you know, sometimes myth is more true than fact and no credible historian, um, you know, would completely dismiss myth. And the idea is that there is a truth within certain myths that means that it has to be defended. And even if the, if the truth, if fact gets in the way of that, then the fact is to go, not the myth. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist and the author of 20 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Dr. Jade McGlynn a research fellow at the Department of War Studies at King's College in London. She's also the author of two recent books, 
memory makers, the politics of the past and Putin's Russia, as well as Russia's war. We're talking about both of them today. You can follow Jade on Twitter, at Dr. Jade McGlynn. That's D-R-J-A-D-E-M-C-G-L-Y-N-N. So how does this myth-making translate on the street? Another way of asking that is he has a domestic audience. What are they saying or thinking? And I realize that there are you know, limitations to what we can actually learn, but how is it being perceived in Russia? So I did a lot of field work um, with different kind of, I suppose, grassroots people who got involved and created their own clubs that were sort of military patriotic or military history clubs to teach often young people, sometimes just sort of interested parties um, about, about Russian patriotic history. And very often they didn't see their views as completely aligning with the governments. They understood that the government was using it, sort of instrumentalizing memory for political purposes, but they found common cause with them. And bluntly, the government provided funding and, and money for, for certain activities. And so it worked quite well. Um, in those, so for example, if we're talking about clubs and camps, it's quite often children, I guess, a bit like in the US, will go to summer camps. And if we look at um, some of the camps that are available in Russia, so there's a very famous one called Strana Geroyev, which is like country of heroes. And their students, can, their pupils can go and they can learn how to engage in historical disinformation battles. They can learn how to reenact. They can learn um, about specific battles. And this is a sort of um, a network of clubs that's across the country. There's also sort of um, clubs that are after school clubs. There's been um, a massive sort of effort to compete with Hollywood um, in terms of Russian films. So there's one society in particular, the Russian Military Historical Society, and that has really engaged with popular culture. So it's contributed, so between 2013 and 2020, it contributed to over 600 films and TV series on history, and that normally meant shaping the script. And that society is headed by um, Vladimir Medinsky, who we just discussed, the, the man who likes myths but not facts. And they work very, there's another very similar society that also engages with this, I suppose, public facing history. And um, that's called the Russian History Society. And that's headed by Sergei Narishkin, who is the head of um, Russia's version of the CIA. So it's, it's um, the people who are involved are pretty heavyweight, I think it's fair to say, but it really does filter down even into sort of child education, um, into sort of after school clubs, and of course, into the infrastructure, whether or not that's putting up plaques, putting up statues, um, or um, painting murals, which is also quite a popular um, a popular thing now to paint sort of murals of, of local war heroes um, from World War II um, on, on apartment buildings. So I guess the term mind control would not really apply here, but myth control might be a proper Maybe. description of what's happening. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's playing on people's emotions. It's playing on something that's there, that's organic, you know, this pride in in the Great Patriots War, and then it's making people feel as if that's under threat, um, that people are trying to destroy that, people are trying to take it away or to, to rubbish it, and therefore Russia has to defend its its history. And so it plays on people's fears, plays on what they feel proud of, and it and it plays on and it plays on that sense of insecurity that they have. Jade, uh, you know, um, 
We feel, I feel like we're just scratching the surface on uh, memory makers, but I want to turn uh, to your other book, Russia's War, uh, and, and ask, what's the link here? What is, how does this myth-making and this, this selective application of history frame the war in Ukraine for the Russian people? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I looked at in Memory Makers was what I call historical framing, which is sort of a few episodes where sort of Russian media, and I looked at around sort of six to eight different um, pro-Kremlin sources. Sometimes they're just Kremlin sources, sometimes they're just sort of Kremlin aligned. And um, I looked at how they use these really intensive kind of historical analogies. Um, and one of the most obvious cases was 2014, which they presented as Russia taking back Crimea and, um, you know, defending um, the Donbass, sort of Donetsk and Luhansk um, regions of Ukraine against resurgent Nazis. Um, And this was a narrative that was really incredibly detailed, incredibly emotional, and it played on sort of narratives from the Soviet Union that Ukrainians during World War II were um, Nazi collaborators um, and that that's essentially who had come to power. And so I found it very odd then when in 2022 people said, oh, where's this Nazi narrative come from? And why would Russians believe that? And you think, well, it's been there for eight years. It's there in films. If you watch sort of all of the World War II films, if there's ever a Ukrainian, they're often sort of a traitor trying to work with the Nazis, or they are a good Ukrainian who essentially just speaks Russian, maybe with a slightly funny accent. Um, and recognizes that they're not really Ukrainian, they're just kind of a little Russian, to use the the term, um, the sort of imp- imperial era term. Mm. And so I found it, I think that's really what pushed it is, well, two things. First is that with Memory Makers, all the time when I was writing it and all the time when I was doing the research, because of course it formed part of my PhD, I felt like I was avoiding where my research was pointing me in that sense of, okay, so, you know, my thesis is that this isn't just propaganda, that people believe this, that there's buy-in and my interviews and my fieldwork are showing that, okay, people are actually sort of at least accepting this and it's kind of shaping their worldview. So then where does that lead? Where does that lead? If we look at these essays, you know, that Putin is writing, surely, surely they would have to act on this. I, and I thought, well, okay, probably they will, but it won't be now because the West isn't weak enough and in their view. And, you know, because, of course, Ukraine would, would never give in. They'd need to do some things. But it turns out really their intelligence on Ukraine was very faulty. Um, and and they did act on it. And I think, you know, after the chaos and the horror of the 24th of February 2022, then I started to see people sort of referring to it as, okay, this is Putin's war and just as soon as Russians know, and it wasn't, then they'll turn against it. And I knew that that wasn't true. And I, I almost felt like Russia's war was like the epilogue to memory makers because I understood why that wouldn't be the case. And it isn't because there's something essentially wrong with Russians. It's because of the context that came before. Um, and and the different ways in which people have been sort of co-opted, but also, you know, limited by certain opportunities, but also given in sometimes for the things that were appealing and all of that within a very repressive atmosphere. Um, So I I felt like it was important to explain it for that reason, because it felt like we were just kind of otherwise sort of shunting between, between two binaries of 
all Russians support the war because they're innately always been evil and imperialistic or no, no Russians support the war. This all just Putin. And once he's gone, it will all go away. And, and both views are going to offer, going to make for a pretty bad policy. <laughs> Well, you know, Jade, the, the two books themselves are uh, an outstanding contribution to our understanding. The one is Memory Makers, the other is Russia's War, uh, and we can't recommend them enough. Thank you so much for being with us. She's Jade McGlynn. That's all the time we have this week, but if you want to know more about storing the public square, you can find us on social media or visit PellCenter.org, where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis, asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.